Uh, today's Bible reading is from 1 Kings 18, and we'll start off uh, from verses 1 and 2. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. Now down to verse 17. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I am left, I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose yourselves one bull, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, <coughs> Baal answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of, his, of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around the altar, as great as would contain two sayers of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. 
And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Nice long reading. I was trying to figure out how we can make this a very practical sermon this morning. I was uh, thinking I'll get the stones in, the wood... Um, maybe an oxen, and then just let you guys do the, do the work <laughs> faithfully. But then I realised we've probably got fire safety issues in here as well, so um, probably can't get the fire going. But, um, so, but it's a great story, isn't it? It's one of my favourite stories of Scripture. Um, it has it all. It's got uh, suspense as Elijah goes off and, and speaks to the, uh, the prophet. It's got everything. It's got uh, a battle between one versus 850, an unlikely battle. It's got, it's unfair, I suppose. Um, it's got everything. It, it'd pack out the cinemas, wouldn't it? It's a great story. So we're going to unpack it a little bit today and, and try and find some, some principles that we can live out in our life. Before I get going, um, there is a night service tonight. Andrew, thank you for, for your prayer there. It was a wonderful prayer. You're preaching tonight as well, aren't you? So um, if you want to hear more of Andrew, come along tonight. Um, he's going to be preaching uh, 6.30. Um, it'll be great to see you all there. Um, we'll have a great time together. So this morning we're going to see that, that God wins. That God wins the battle. But we're also going to see that God uses faithful servants, people like you and I, to make extraordinary things happen for God. And Elijah, like we've seen, was a man that was in training. He had his time at the Cherith Brook where, where he uh, had, was fed by the, the ravens. He had his time at Zarephath, if you've been here the last few weeks, where he had to be bold in obeying God. And now he becomes bold in faith as he battles the prophets of Baal. Because Elijah's training in bold obedience comes to this moment. One against 850. And we know who wins. Let's pray. So God, as we start seeking, your, your, uh, seeking to understand your word, help us to um, be attentive to what you're saying to us. That we may be able to leave here, uh, not just with more knowledge, but with an understanding of how we can live out our faith in the world that we live Amen. Over this weekend, the, uh, the Baptist Union put on a conference. Uh, it was uh, a lot, so language other than English, uh, churches conference. So uh, heaps and heaps of churches through the Baptist Union. The Baptist Union is made up of a lot of churches. Uh, Victoria is made up of a lot of churches. Uh, a third of those churches now are churches that don't have English as their first language. And the, the union put on a conference for the, the youth and the young adults of those churches this weekend. And Solari was involved in making that happen. 
A great conference, it's been running for a few years. Um, hundreds of young people come and celebrate the diversity of culture. It really was a fantastic uh, um, place. It was great. Um, Solari was one of the key speakers on Friday, and she did a great job. She was really good. Um, we'll have to get her up here at some stage. She was really good. Uh, but the other speaker that was there was Tarquin. Tarquin was able to speak. If you, if you roll through um, to, to the slide, you'll see Tarquin up on stage, an 11-year-old speaker, and he did such a good job. He was, he was absolutely brilliant. He spoke uh, on Romans 12, on being transformed, and he just... He nailed it. He had six or seven minutes where he just spoke. He threw out lollies. He was, he was right there. He did the whole lot. Um, and then Solari spoke. And Jasper also got up and, said, and shared a prayer. And I was so proud of my family. <laughs> so proud of my family. This is, in front, this is not in front of like two or three people. This is in front of hundreds of young people. And, uh, and so the faith of our, our kids was brilliant. Um, he was confident. Tucker was confident. He was inspiring. He did such a good job. And I, was, I reflected on Tarquin doing that. I thought, what courage and what faith it would have taken for an 11-year-old. I wouldn't have been anywhere near doing anything like that as an 11-year-old. You wouldn't have got me in front of four people, let alone 400 people, as an 11-year-old. It was fantastic. It was no small feat. And he embraced it. He took it on. He was enthusiastic. He was bold. And he stepped out and did this, this thing, this preaching in front of all those people. It was pretty cool. So, but as we think about taking the step of faith as Tarquin did, I wonder when was the last time you stepped outside of your own comfort zone? Doing something for God that perhaps made you just that little bit nervous or uncomfortable. I wonder when was the last time you stepped out and did something like that? Because as we journey through this passage in 1 Kings 18, we'll come across four principles, four things that we can put into our lives that help us to move from that, that bold obedience that was being shown by Elijah to a bold, practical faith. As we step into our scripture now, we find that the, verse, the first verse of chapter 18 brings a change in the narrative of Elijah's life. After three years, God speaks to Elijah and says, now it's time to go and show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Remember, it's been a drought. A three-year drought's a big drought. There's no water throughout the whole land. Three years ago, God had said, go and tell Ahab that there's not going to be any rain until I speak the word because of your disobedience, because of your idolatry. It's important for us to remember that in this story, God is the one who stopped the rain, not Elijah. God was doing something. God is the one who will restore the rain as well, through Elijah's voice for sure, but it's not Elijah that's doing. Elijah is the faithful servant obeying God. And when we serve, we're God's hands and feet right here on this earth. That's what we are. Let's not get ahead of ourselves thinking that we've got the ability to do something that only God can do. We are God's conduits for God's action on earth. So Elijah hears from God and obeys and heads to see 
Ahab. Now, the part of the story of, of chapter 18 that we miss is all about this fellow Obadiah. Go home and read the rest of chapter 18 uh, about Obadiah and his life. Um, he's the one who, who hid a hundred of, of Yahweh's prophets, a hundred of God's prophets, um, to spare them from Jezebel, who was on a rampage, probably trying to look for Elijah. So Obadiah was, was faithful. And Obadiah was responsible for setting up this meeting between Elijah and Ahab. And can you imagine the encounter that was going to happen? Three years they've been looking for Elijah. Three years he's been hidden. Three years he hasn't said the word for the rain to come. Three years there's been carnage to crops, carnage to livestock, human carnage. We know that the, the widow at Zarephath was, was going to prepare her last meal and then her and her son were going to die. We know that there would have been lives lost. So for a king, having his land so parched was not going to be a good thing. He's maybe not caring for his kingdom well enough. And King Ahab, I'm sure, would not have been in a great mood when Elijah finally presents himself to him. We know that he doesn't, he's not in a great mood because he says, Elijah, you troubler of Israel. It's the first thing he says to him. You troubler of Israel. Ahab places the whole uh, blame for the calamity in the, in the, in the land on Elijah. He says, you're the one that's caused this problem. You're the one who stopped the rain. If it wasn't for you in our lives, we'd be okay. And I'm sure Elijah's preparation was in these moments. Because I'm sure coming against the most powerful man in the land, hearing that you're the one that's caused him anger could have been a fearful thing. But because of what God's hand has sustained him along the way. Because he's seen the miracles of the unending oil and flour, because he saw a young boy come back to life, because of all this, Ahab has the courage to speak into the situation, knowing that God's put him right there for that right reason right now. Regardless of what Ahab's going to do, Elijah knows this is the right time. And, and he has this confidence in knowing that, that God has him in this place. So he responds to, to Ahab, I am not the one who has made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You're the one who have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Elijah wasn't willing just to take sort of lip from Ahab to take the blame. Elijah stood in full boldness. faithfully saying, no, you've got it wrong. This is what's caused the problem. You've abandoned God. You've abandoned the Lord. You've brought other gods into this. This is on you, Ahab. And within this, we find our first principle. When you have the assurance of knowing that you're in the right place, that God wants you, you're invincible. You're invincible. If, God, if you know that you're where you're meant to be, you can faithfully do what God's called you to do, knowing that God is right there with you, that God is calling you to be in that space. When we were in England, Larry and I, we went to a, a conference and there was a, a fellow that was speaking and he was pretty inspirational. 
And we had a great time at this conference. And then he stopped and he started sort of speaking words over, over people, prophesying. And he stopped and he looked at me and I sort of shrunk in my seat. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I wasn't used to that. I was like, oh, no. And he pointed at me. I'm like, oh, here we go. And I'm like, what, what's he going to say? And he said, you are meant to be here today and you are in the right place where God wants you to be. So we're in England. We've been there for a year and a bit. Um, our visas were finishing up in sort of six months' time, and we had to renew them. Um, we were trying to work out what God was wanting for our life. And this guy points at us and says, you are in the right place right now. You know what confidence that gave me that day, knowing that God had said something to me through this fellow, and we went just uh, a couple of weeks later, and went and renewed our visas so we could stay an extra two and a half years. And we saw God do awesome stuff in the UK through the youth group and the ministry that we were, we were running there. Because we knew, we had the confidence that God had called us to be in that spot at that time. Because when you have that assurance of knowing that you're in the right place, the place right where God wants you to be, you can do things faithfully with the assurance that God is there with you. Elijah says to Ahab, no, this isn't on me. I know this is where God wants me to be, and I know this is on you. This is all about your idolatry, Ahab. And so Elijah, he creates a plan. And he says, well, I'm going to call out this idolatry, and my plan is going to be to take on, to battle all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, all 850 of them. So in verse 90, he gets them all together. And I like his plan because he makes it really visual. He makes it visual for everyone. He gets all the 850 prophets. 850 prophets who the Bible says were dining at, his ta- at, at uh, Ahab's table. 850 prophets of Baal, false gods, were the ones that were in the king's ear the whole time. And he's going to bring them out the front. He's going to show them for who they are. 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah compared to one prophet of God, of of the Lord. But when you're in the place where God wants you to be and you've got that assurance, hey, you can do all things in faith. You can make a call on some injustice that you're seeing in the world. You can speak boldly into a friend's life when you can see them going off the rails. You can steer your friends into a a deeper understanding of Jesus because you know that you're in the right space. Bold faith comes when you know that you're in the place that God wants you to be. How do you know if you're in that right place? I wonder if you think about your, your careth moments. Those times where you've been training, where God's been teaching you and growing you. I wonder if you've been to Zarephath. Zarephath, whatever how you say it. I wonder if you've been to that place just recently and God's given you a sense that, yes, I'm ready. Because when you've been to those places, you'll know that you are in the place where God wants you to be. Have you spent time training? Because it's through those training times you start to understand where God's calling you to be. So Ahab assembles the 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah, 
But there's some other people that come across to the mountain as well. In verse 20 we see, So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel. Who are these sons of Israel? Well, we can presume that they're the general public coming to witness this, this battle that was to happen. Ahab sent this message out to them, so maybe we can presume that he's bringing some people along to support his ideas and ideals. Maybe. We can presume that, that through uh, Ahab's leadership that many people would have turned from the Lord to these uh, prophets of Baal to Baal. There are 850 priests of them, so they would have been everywhere. <laughs> Only one priest of Yahweh. So maybe they're, they're all there just to see this one prophet who stopped the rain, who's caused problems in the land, get destroyed by the 850. But I love verse 21, because here's where Elijah's bold faith calls out everyone's idolatry. And he says this, they, they all come. You can imagine it. It's sort of a theatrical thing. You can imagine Elijah doing it. He goes, he goes these people are coming around, and he starts sort of walking to the crowd. How long are you going to waver between two opinions? How long are you going to waver between Lord, the Lord and these other prophets? How long are you going to do it? Why are you going to choose between one or the other? How long are you going to waver between them? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow them. Can you imagine what Elijah's doing? He's taking these people who are just nowhere in, in with the Lord. And he's challenging them. He's calling them out. It's idolatry. Preaching 101 tells me that the first thing to do to get a crowd engaged is to, uh, is to maybe tell a story, to try and engage with them, to get their attention, and then, and then perhaps um, sort of engage sort of a, a story that can, can help people to, to feel like they're comfortable. I'm not sure Elijah would have done that with <laughs> in that stage, <laughs> calling them out straight away. Elijah got their attention, but I don't know he got them on side. But this speaks to our second principle this morning. You want to put the principle up? God despises split loyalty. And I know that they're split loyalty in the crowd because they don't get angry with Elijah. Elijah might get in their face and call them out, but they don't get angry with him. It doesn't say they, they picked up the rocks and they started throwing it at Elijah. They don't get angry with him. They don't say, but, but, but Elijah's been really tough, you know, and these guys are here and you weren't. And, but, but Elijah, they don't, they don't do that either. They don't go, oh, well, uh, oh yes, Elijah, you're right. I'll, uh, I'll get back to Yahweh and everything will be okay. They don't even do that. They stay silent. Verse 20 says, But the people said nothing. Have you ever been in an argument or a heated discussion and, and it's just that back and forth, that continual back and forth because the person that you're arguing with comes back with something really good and then you come back with something really good and you think, I've got on this time and you say something really clever and then they, they get back and this is the last one and they go, bang. And they say a truth that really hits deep into you and you go, And you can't say anything. <coughs> I reckon that's what was happening. Because all of a sudden you've heard the truth. I reckon that's what this crowd is like. They would have heard the stories of their ancestors of the past. 
their forefathers from slavery, God rescuing them, leading them into the promised land. They knew that God time and again protected them, provided for them, saved them. And they also knew that they turned their backs on Israel's God and turned to these gods of Jezebel. And Elijah's bold faith called out the truth. You know, sometimes in our society, calling out the truth is scary. Having to tell a friend that you can't waver between worshipping Jesus on a Sunday and living a party lifestyle on a Saturday night isn't going to be, it's not an easy thing to, talk, to call out. Telling a business partner that, that what he's doing is stretching ethical boundaries, wavering between right and wrong, it may not ever be found out, but it's not easy to do, is it? Calling out the truth can be costly. But it's also honouring of God and of the other person. Because Elijah's bold call to, the, uh, to, bold call to the people, make them stop to think. I was wondering as I was writing this, what if the story stopped there? What if the battle never happened? I wonder what the response of the people would have been at that stage. I wonder whether the crowd would have gone, I remember Yahweh. I remember what God's done for us. Why are we worshipping these false gods? I would hope that at this stage they were already reconsidering their wavering faith. But just in case they weren't, Elijah decides, well, I'm going to take these guys on. (laughs) And Elijah's got a plan that would undeniably prove that God is indeed the one true God. And in Kings 18, 20-24, Elijah sets out the plan. Right, we're going to get two oxen. You choose one of them, and you can cut it up and place it on the wood and put some fire, and and, um, don't put any fire underneath it. Just do that, and I'll do the same. And then he says, call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of my God, And whoever's God answers by fire, well, that's the true God. And everyone says, well, that's a good idea. That's good. We'll know once and for all. So it'll be all right. It is totally bold faith, isn't it? Elijah was so so sure of being right where God wanted him to be, so confident that God was in this, that boldly he says, we're going to have like a God off. (laughs) And the person whose God answers with fire is the true God. It's pretty bold, isn't it? It's a massive statement. Faithful. I wonder if Elijah ever went through that process that I, I always go through. But, but God, what if, what if it wasn't you saying that? I don't know if anyone else feels that. But Elijah, knowing that he was right where God wanted him to be, knowing that his loyalty was totally with, with uh, God, he said, this is what's going to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. And doesn't let anything move him from that space. So we see the prophets of Baal, they take their ox, they cut it up and place it on the wooden altar. And they start calling on the name of Baal from morning, morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they made, verses 25 and 26. Remember what we said a few weeks back, that God was the God supposedly in charge of the the fertility of the land. He was the one who had dominion over crops and over, therefore, sort of 
over sort of rain, I suppose, and, and over the elements. So it's not, it's not un, un, unfair to sort of suggest that they probably felt that, that their, their God could do some fire stuff as well. But there was nothing. 450 of them dancing around, yelling, carrying on, calling the bar for Baal to show up. Nothing. Elijah was so certain of the place where God had called him to be that he just stood back and mocked them. <laughs> Can you imagine that? One against 450. He mocks them. It's like being at your footy game or the, the footy where your team's 70 points up at half time and you just lean across to your mate who's barracking for that other team and go, hopeless. <laughs> Not going to happen. You're done. You're so sure that the game is done that you can start doing that. So Elijah, seeing their issues in summoning Baal, calls out and he does this mocking. And in verse 27, it says, Shout louder. Surely. He's a God, perhaps he's deep in thought or busy. Maybe he's traveling. Might be. Maybe he's sleeping and you're sort of not loud enough to wake him up. Imagine that. One guy just mocking these 450 guys. That's a lot of people. I think we can fit about 450, 500 in here. So one guy going, keep going, guys, because I don't think he hears you. <laughs> He says, perhaps he is in deep thought. Maybe it's like this, this uh, if you go to the next one, the statue. <laughs> deep thought. Often look like he's on the toilet there, doesn't he? <laughs> Elijah, some, some commentators actually think that that's what the, uh, the, the text might say, that he's actually sort of relieving himself and can't hear you because he's on the toilet. <laughs> but he goes further. Perhaps he's away on a journey, so you're not important enough for him to come and see. Or perhaps he's asleep. It's whatever he's doing, it's clear that Elijah's just mocking them straight to their faith. He has that much confidence in his Lord. And it says something about the confidence that he has in Baal as well. He's not going to show up. There is, this is a false god. And like all good mocking does, it, it elicits a response, doesn't it? Like your, your mate in the footy, when you say, your team's hopeless. Oh, no, they're not. They're just having a bad day, just like the Maggie's on Friday night. <laughs> bad month, maybe a bad year. It elicits a response. And so what do the prophets do? They get louder, and they get louder, and they start cutting themselves, and blood's going everywhere, and it's just becoming a big, big mess. Chaos doesn't awaken their God. And verse 29 tells the final story. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. From morning till evening, they just yelled, they danced, they cut themselves, there was nothing, no response. Into the scene comes Elijah, the one prophet of the Lord. And it was in this moment that he'd been training for. This is why he was in solitude in Kerith. This is why his faith tests in Zarephath were happening, because of this moment. So before 450 prophets of Baal, there were 400 prophets of Asherah there. There were all these other people. There was the king, the most powerful man in the country. Elijah did something pretty spectacular. He got 12 stones and he built an altar. He didn't just put the wood down. He got 12 stones and built an altar. Because what did that do? It reminded the people of where they come from. The 12 tribes that have once been together, they were now split. He reminded them, this is our heritage. 
This is where we came from. Remember it, because you're going to see something pretty spectacular. And he digs a trench around it, and he puts the wood on the altar. He cuts up the, cut up the ox and put it on the wood. But then he goes to them, go get four pitchers of water. However big a pitcher is, we don't know what it is. Might be big, might be small. He goes, get, get four pitchers of water and pour it over the wood. Who, who likes lighting fires? Yeah, lighting fires is pretty cool. Not like, like, like in a fireplace um, type fires. Um, <laughs> um, but lighting fires when you've got wet wood is not easy, is it? It's not, it's not the easiest thing in the world. You need quite a hot fire already to be able to put some wet wood on the fire. But he goes, and three times they pour all this water over the wood. There's a lot of water. There's water in the trench as well. And you think, oh, but there was a drought. Where'd they get all the water from? Well, they're quite close to the sea here. So probably salt water. But anyway, it's not easy to, to light a fire with wet wood. And I reckon what Elijah was doing here was going, this is going to be nothing about me. This is going to be all about God. All about what God's doing. I'm not going to be a part of this process. I can't be. And after the waters are applied, Elijah stops and prays. He doesn't dance around. He doesn't cut himself. He doesn't yell and scream. He just prays. And he prays this prayer, a bold, faithful prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Our third principle comes from this today. Faithful, bold prayer is our weapon within the spiritual battle. Faithful, bold prayer is our weapon within the spiritual battle. Elijah's prayer was simple. It wasn't a, a prayer that was screaming out and yelling, dancing, running, crying. Just a prayer that would say, God, improve, prove yourself that you are God. And of course, we see the fire um, consume the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the water in the trench consumes the whole lot. Isn't it amazing that so often we try and take on the problems of the world on our own? When we've got the most powerful weapon that we could have, prayer. Does anyone enjoy making Ikea furniture? Anyone? Some people, yeah, there's a few people enjoy it. Does anyone enjoy making Ikea furniture and the challenge of doing it without the instructions? Yeah, there's a few people. You know, I don't, I, I, I've tried it a couple of times, and inevitably there's always a time where I fail. Put something upside down, or, and I've got to unscrew it all again and take it all apart, and inevitably it's not right. And you always have to go finally back to the instructions where I should have started in the first place. Because I would have got it right if I had started with the instructions. When all else fails, we go back to the instructions. Sometimes I get the feeling we do the same with prayer. We, we try and try to fix things for ourselves, and when all else fails, we go back to prayer. Ever guilty of that? Elijah teaches us that prayer is not just his first resort. It's his only resort. He doesn't have to impress anyone with his prayer. He just prays. And the result? Fire from above. 
But the real result here is not just, wow, look at the fire. It's that when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah's bold prayer of faith and God's action results in bringing people back to God. No longer will they waver between the two. No longer will they see these prophets anymore. Because at the end of the story says that Elijah goes and and gets rid of them all, slaughters them all. So if we're to draw one final principle from this story, it could be this. That victory comes through a continually dedicated life. Victory comes through a fully dedicated life. And as we move through the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we can get caught up in the story because it's a great story, isn't it? It's a story, a visual story. We make the, the visuals go out in our mind. It's a really great story. In isolation, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun story to read, a story of where God wins and a story that has all the action that is needed for a, a great cinematic movie. Yet this wasn't a one-off for Elijah. The victory came because he had confidence that he could depend on God again and again and again. He could take bold steps of of obedience and bold steps of faith because he'd already seen God again show up again, again and again. So when he's alone, surrounded by a king who doesn't want him, 850 hostile prophets who didn't want his message to be heard, a group of Israelites that were just wavering in their devotion to the Lord, Elijah's dedication to doing the will of God just shines through. I wonder if you can think of a, a time in your life that the people have influenced your faith journey. As I thought about people in my life, their dedication to God shines through. I think about some friends who lost a daughter, yet their story speaks volumes to how God has, has um, uh, the goodness of God in their life continually. I think of my Bible college lecturers who, who dedicate, whose dedication to their study not only helped me in my understanding of Scripture, but helped me to understand how I can live my life for Jesus more. And I think of many countless people who have mentored me, who've spoken words into me, who have given me hope to, to, to have that dedicated faith as well. And I'm sure you can think about people in your journey who have done the same for you, who can point to your dedication that you show in God. I think of a group of young people who uh, about a month ago stood forward at a night service and said, I want to commit to being baptised. And they put their hands up and said, I want to follow Jesus no matter where that may lead me. That's exciting because of the dedicated faith of others. How great would it be as people who are continually living the dedicated life start to influence the areas of where we live, our neighbours, as we've talked about in the Bless series, our workplaces, how our dedicated life can make an impact on the moral scope and the spiritual scope of our workplaces. Imagine what this area would be like if we embrace this idea of the dedicated life. And I wonder if we, like Elijah, 
can be those four things. Be bold in faith, knowing that we're right where God wants us. Be faithful to God and God alone. Be faithful in prayer as our first response. And live the dedicated life. Not this one-hit wonder life, but the life that lasts the distance in faith. Let's pray. Our God, this morning we've seen you in this story do a mighty thing. We've seen how you've used your prophet Elijah to make, a, a, to make people turn from their wavering faith back to you. And God, we thank you for the dedicated life that we see in Elijah. Dedicated to boldly proclaiming who you are regardless of the circumstance he finds himself in. So this morning may we leave with that sense of dedication as well. Seeking to find where you are calling us to be specifically, that we can boldly speak into the situations that we find ourselves in, knowing that you are right there with us. We thank you, God, for your word that encourages, enriches, and enlivens us. Amen.